Um, so this morning, um, I probably wrestled with the talk today more than I've wrestled with many talks uh, in the past. I mean, this was like an all day and night conversation this entire week inside of my head of how we are going um, to continue uh, our series Extraordinary and how we're going to talk about Esther today and how we're going to kind of do all this. And so I, I think I've come to a good place. Um, if I haven't, you can uh, write me some strongly worded emails this week and I'll probably ignore them. So, but that option is there for you. But um, <laughs> I want to throw out real quick, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you should speak up? Like you felt like you should say something. You felt like you should do something but you just, you didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to say. You didn't know how to say it. You didn't know, you just, you just didn't know, you know? Like, I want you to think through your hearts and through your lives and through your minds and, and, and your experiences and think to a time when that has happened, where you've, you've, you've felt this, this urge, this, this thing inside of you, like, ah, I should say something, but I don't know what to say, and I don't know how to say it, and, and all this. This happened with me a few years ago here at the church, um, so I've been here for about five years. This happened about four years ago, three, four years ago, something like that. And there were two prominent families in our church at this time. They were pretty much the only two families. No, I'm just kidding, but kind of not kidding. We, we were running probably like 30, 40 people, and these were like two of our families, right? And one of them was like ultra involved in the ministry side of things, and one of them was ultra involved in like the practical side of things. And so they made up a big chunk of the core of our church. And so... I saw something beginning to take place with these two families. Um, the, the husband of one family and the wife of the other family began to be more than just friends in a way, right? I, I saw this relationship crossing a line that it shouldn't cross, right? And so I'm sitting there and I'm seeing this and I'm going, hmm, what do I say? Do I say anything? How do I say it? How do I approach this? What's the first step? Because I mean, all four spouses, everyone's there. So am I being rude and intrusive to say, hey, that's, that's pretty inappropriate, the way you guys are interacting, even though your husband and wife are standing right there. What do I say? What do I do? How do I say it? How do I do it? And I saw it coming for a long time, right? But I said nothing. And I did nothing because I didn't want to intrude. I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to cross lines that I shouldn't cross. I didn't know where the line was. And I was very uncertain, very unsure, but I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what to do. And that's probably one of my biggest failures as a pastor here thus far. It's one of my biggest regrets is not saying something because ultimately the two walked away from their families and it was, now there's two devastated families in the world. And could I have stopped it? I don't know. But could I have said something? Absolutely. Could I have stepped up and said, hey, Mm, that's mm, not a good idea. Or could I have at least done my part and started the conversation, right? And I failed miserably. This is me being vulnerable in a room full of people. <laughs> but I failed miserably at that. And so I made a vow that if I see anything, if I, any of you look at anybody else's spouses, I'm coming after you, all right? If I see you talking about donuts in the lobby, hey, does your wife know you're talking about donuts? You know, so just beware. I'm like an eagle eye now. But, um, you know, I, I failed miserably at that, but I feel like, not necessarily the same context, not necessarily the same scenario, but I feel like over this past week, many of us have been lost for words. I feel like over this past week, many of us have been looking for answers. 
I feel like many of us have been looking for, you know, what's the first step? What can I do? What can I say? How do I say it? How do I do it? And we feel like we're in this limbo spot. We're like, do I say something? Do I not? Am I, if I do say something, how do I say it? What do I say? How do I frame this? How do I contextualize this? How do I kind of make it all happen, right? Because I've seen your Facebook posts, and many of you are in that spot this past week where you're like, there's so much going on in America and so much tension and so much divide and so much just separation and polarization and all these different things that we're like, do we say something? Do we not say something? If we do, how do we do it? How do we say it? And so it's really interesting this morning that we're continuing our series that we're calling Extraordinary. And what's really cool about this is that we plan, we have a meeting in December where we plan all of our topics for the entire year, right? And we plan everything. Obviously, we throw some stuff out, but this year, I think we've only had to change like one thing, two things so far this year. And it's really a cool thing. We get a group of people, staff members and people part of the church. We fast for a couple of weeks and then we come together for this meeting. We meet for about four or five hours and we just bang it out. And we, we figure out everything we're gonna talk about. And it's a really, really awesome thing when when the events of this past week take place and then you look on the calendar and it says that we're talking about Esther today. And it's like, whoa, that's awesome that God knew in December that we'd be talking about Esther this morning and that the events in our country have taken place this past week. And so we're continuing our extraordinary series. I'm super excited to get into Esther. But for those of you who missed it last week, um, Chris opened us up with talking about Rahab. And it's really cool. Um, if you guys have your phone out during church, I'm going to assume that you're not catching Pokemon. Okay? I'm going to make that assumption that you're not catching Pokemon and that you are writing down quotes or taking notes. Because last week I had my phone out. Um, I was like, Chris, man, I had my phone out the whole time you were talking last week. And he was like, oh, thanks. I was like, no, no, no. I was typing down quotes. Because what I did, I, I wrote down like four or five different things that he said, and I came back to him all throughout the week. I was like, man, that was so cool. One of the things he said is he said, no matter how inadequate, marginalized, defeated, lonely, or weak that we feel, God says that we are worthy. That was powerful. I mean, that's powerful, life-giving stuff right there, right? Because he was talking about extraordinary and being extraordinary in the ordinary, and that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He said, whatever label life has put on you, the label that God has placed on you is loved, is worthy, is Christ, that's the label that God has given you. And so when you look at these extraordinary mountains that have to be climbed, and I'm just a little ordinary person, and we feel inadequate and unable to make change and unable to do things, God says, no, you are loved, you are worthy. When I see you, I see Jesus. That's huge. That's powerful. He said, uh, when we recognize our need for God, we realize his presence in our lives. He's always there, but when we recognize our need for him, that's when we embrace the reality that he is there in his presence in our lives. And then he closed it off with, God wants to use you to do the extraordinary. And so he kind of set the tone for the rest of this series, for this week and even on to next week. That God wants to use you to do the extraordinary. And so when we're in these places where we feel like, but I'm just me, you know? And how do I impact everything? And the reality is God wants to use you, every single one of you. He wants to use me, the ordinary people, to do something absolutely extraordinary. And so let's pray together, and then we're going to jump in to the story of Esther. Now today, there's not going to be a lot of uh, passages up on the screen, because what I'm doing is I'm covering five chapters worth of information. And so I could like sit here and read you five chapters, but I promise you, you'd all be catching Pokemon or sleeping. 
okay? So we're not gonna do that. I'm gonna give you kind of an overview of it, and so trek with me. It's gonna be very like conversational style, but this is the Bible stuff that we're talking about here, okay? Just because we're not opening the book and putting the words on the screen, we're telling the story of Esther that's outlined over five chapters in the book of Esther. So if you wanna follow along in your Bibles, you can, but I'm gonna give you, um, what, the, the SAV, Sam Anderson version, so just kind of trek with us, okay? So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to just be a community together, to be people hanging out with people, regular people, ordinary people that you want to use to do extraordinary things. God, thank you that we get to come together and sing praises and adoration to you. That when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And rather than dealing with all the semantics of that, we can just sit back and think, what an honor and a privilege that is in the first place, that you would draw near to us. And God, I pray that as we open your word and we look at the story of Esther, I pray that you would allow it to come alive to us and to speak to us and to energize us and encourage us and inspire us. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts and you would open our minds and we'd be receptive to your truth this morning. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. So the story of Esther, many of you are probably relatively familiar with the story of Esther, but the story of Esther is a story of obscurity to royalty. It's this story of an orphan to a queen. You know, it's, 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 you know, I told myself I wasn't going to do this, but it's a story of we started from the bottom, now we're here, right? That's, that's what it is, this whole story of Esther. And so it starts off that she's, uh, the story kind of sets the stage and tells us who Esther is by telling us that she's an orphan that both of her parents uh, had passed away. And so one of her parents' cousins was named Mordecai. So there's gonna be some characters that you gotta kind of flow with me here a little bit. So Mordecai. Mordecai takes over as the guardian of Esther. So Mordecai is like Esther's dad. That's how I'm gonna refer to him for the rest of the story. Essentially, it's not her dad, but it's her like stepdad, foster dad, however you wanna say it. But um, Mordecai is Esther's father figure in her life, right? So Mordecai takes over this... this, this um, orphan named Esther and raises her like his own daughter. Now, the king at the time is King Xerxes. And so King Xerxes has this queen named Vashti. Vashti. She sounds feisty, doesn't she? Vashti. So Vashti, Xerxes invites Vashti. He's like, hey, listen, we got this banquet. We got this event. You need to come with me, right? And she's like, uh-uh, it ain't happening. And Xerxes is like, what? I'm the king. And she's like, uh-uh, it ain't happening. So he gets all frustrated or whatever, and he banishes her. He's like, you ain't the queen no more. And she's like, Xerxes, whatever. So that all takes place, right? Okay. So Xerxes banishes Vashti, the queen. And so now he needs a queen. He has no queen anymore. He's gotten rid of, of this woman. And so this is what's super interesting. See, I thought that ABC was the originator of The Bachelor, but they're not. It seems that Chris Harrison and his forefathers from many years past established the bachelor here with King Xerxes. Because what he does is he makes this decree and he goes around all the kingdom and says, gather all the young, beautiful virgins and bring them to the palace. So the bachelor missed that, that, that one part, the, the virgin part. But anyway, he says, gather all the virgins and beautiful virgins and bring them to the palace, right? And they go through this like six-month beautification process. So these are already like 
the best looking females in the kingdom. And then he puts them through this other like huge six month process of like all these oils and treatments and skin stuff and all this stuff. So he does this big ordeal and gets all these beautiful women together. And then he's going to pick who his queen is. The bachelor, right? Essentially. And so it goes through this process and all these things are happening. And Esther wins the king's favor. He's like, yep, that's the one. And so essentially Esther wins the bachelor and becomes queen. And so now Esther is the queen. Now Mordecai, who is Esther's like father figure, is now hanging around the temple courts, hanging around the city. Like he's sort of like this prominent Jew in the community because, you know, Esther's the queen and she won the bachelor. So everybody knows who she is. People are walking up, taking selfies with her in the courtyard. All this stuff is happening, right? And so Mordecai has his ear to the ground. He's kind of connected. He's plugged into all this stuff. So Mordecai hears of a conspiracy to kill Xerxes, who is the king. There's these two officials that are like, dude, Xerxes is a jerk. We want to be the bachelor. So they are going to kill him. Right? That's essentially what happens. So Mordecai gets wind of this and he goes to Xerxes and he's like, listen, this is going to happen and you need to do something about it. You need to figure this out. And so Xerxes does his research or whatever and he finds out and he snuffs out the threat. And so that's no longer a problem. But then he promotes this guy named Haman. And so now Haman is the new guy that's in charge. And, and Xerxes trusts this Haman guy so much that he makes him like second in command of the whole kingdom. So it's like, the only person that Haman answers to is Xerxes, right? So he's like, he can do whatever he wants. And so what does he do? He decides to make a decree that everyone has to bow down to him. Haman's like, minions, you must bow to me, right? And so they're doing this and everybody's bowing down. But Mordecai is like, nah, man, that's not happening because I'm a Jew and I follow Yahweh. My love and my honor and my worship is reserved for God, not you. And so Haman's like, whoa, because obviously he has an authority complex because he's making everyone bow down to him, right? And so Haman gets like furious. But rather than Haman saying, I'm gonna kill Mordecai, he takes it a step further. So like this dude's got some serious issues. He's like, not only am I gonna go after Mordecai, I'm gonna go after all the Jews. Because Mordecai's a Jew, I'm gonna wipe them all out. I'm gonna wipe out his whole family tree. I'm gonna wipe out everything there is to do with him. And so he makes his decree and he starts going out into all the provinces and stuff and going after the Jews. And so Mordecai, or so uh, Haman builds this big gallows outside of the temple, outside of the, the courts or whatever, right? He builds this big like hanging station, right? Because he's going to get Mordecai. He's going to get Mordecai's people and he's just going to make it happen. But Mordecai still, he refuses to bow. He's like, nah, man, that's, that's not what I'm doing. I love and serve Yahweh. And so he goes to Esther with it. He's like, Esther, listen. Check this out. I know you're the queen now. I know you're big time. You're doing all late night talk shows. Do you think you could just kind of throw out a word to the, to the, the, the king and say, listen, Haman's killing all the Jews. Haman's going through and he's persecuting these people and that's not okay. And so Esther gets this information and she's like, okay, all right, here's what we're gonna do. So Mordecai and Esther, they, they, they work together and Esther approaches the king. This is a huge deal. You don't approach the king. If you come and approach the king without the king summoning you, he can either hold out his gold scepter, meaning you're okay, you can talk, or game over. So this is not something you take lightly. This is not something that's like, oh yeah, me and Xerxes, we're awesome. Well, I'll just go tell him, you know, I'll tell him later while we're eating Taco Bell. No, that's not the way it works. 
She even says, I haven't been summoned to the king for like 30 something days or something like that. Like it's been a while since I've seen this dude. Like he, he calls upon me, I come. If not, you know, whatever, right? Some of you guys are like, why can't it be that way? <laughs> just don't vocalize it, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. My wife, I love my wife. She's giving me a mean look right now. I love you, you're so beautiful. Anyway, um, so what Esther does is she says, you know what, I'm doing this. I'm going to the king. And so she goes to King Xerxes and she's like, hey, listen, what's up? And he like holds out his scepter and he's like, hey, what's going on? Let's talk, whatever. And so he, um, Esther goes to him and says, listen, I want to throw a banquet for you, for you and Haman, you know, you and your right-hand man. Let's, uh, let's, I want to throw a banquet for you guys. And he's like, okay, well, what does the queen want? Anything she wants, I'll give the queen. She's like, nothing, no, I just want to, I want to throw a banquet for you. And so the next day they come and they go to this banquet that, that Esther throws and it's this just glorious meal and they eat and they're, they're pleased with everything. And uh, Xerxes goes, man, this was so amazing. This was so awesome. Thank you so much. You know, what do you want? Anything up to like half the kingdom or whatever, I'll give it to you. Whatever you want, I'll make it happen. She's like, you know what I want? I want you and Haman to come back tomorrow and I want to do this for you again. I want to do it again. I want to, I want to make another banquet and I want you to come back tomorrow. And so they're all like super pleased with her. Like, man, this is the best thing. Haman's like, this is the best position ever. The queen's like cooking me food and making it. This is awesome, right? So they go out and they come back the next day to the banquet and she does the same deal and they show up and they're super happy. They're super excited, all this stuff. And again, Xerxes comes to her and says, what, what it, whatever, you know, you've pleased the king. The king, I, I delight in your presence. I delight in all that you've done. This is a, the most amazing thing ever. What do you want? Anything, what do you want? And here's the pivotal moment where Esther just like drops the hammer, right? She comes to the king and she's like, well, actually, <laughs> now that you ask, Haman's doing all this stuff. And she says, it's not cool. She's per he's persecuting the Jews. Those are my people. And so she takes a stand. And essentially what she's doing, a woman, first of all, in the first century, approaching the king saying, it's either me or your right-hand man. Vashti was like, he was like, peace, Vashti, going to the bachelor. But Esther comes in knowing that's the case and says, it's either I have to take a stand for my people. So essentially it's either me or your right-hand man. What's it gonna be? That's massive. That is a huge statement to make. That is a huge stand for Esther to take right? And so Xerxes is like, okay, sweet. See you, Haman, right? And he goes and he takes Haman and he actually hangs Haman on the gallows that he had erected for Mordecai and the Jews. And so there's like this whole irony thing that's twisted in there as well. And so in spite of all the adversity, in spite of all the terrible repercussions that could take place for Esther and her people, she took a stand and said, no, nah, listen, this ain't gonna fly. You can't do this. I won't stand for this. That's not, it's not okay. It's absolutely not okay. And so from the story of Esther, I feel like in light of our current social situation, right? I feel like there's a lot of similarities and comparisons that could be made here, but three really jumped out at me. Three things really jumped out at me that I thought, you know what? I feel like that can relate to everybody, every single person. These three observations that come from Esther, I feel like every person in this room can take these observations, apply them to their heart, apply them to their life, and we can make a difference in this world. 
I really believe that. And the three observations are that, are that the, Esther of, the, the story of Esther is a story of faith, it's a story of wisdom, and it's a story of courage. Faith, wisdom, and courage. Faith, wisdom, and courage. These three things jumped out of the story like crazy at me. You see, Esther and Mordecai's faith, Esther and Mordecai's faith prompted them to respond. Esther and Mordecai's faith prompted them to respond. Mordecai said, no, because of my faith, I will not stand for bowing down to Haman. Esther's faith said, no, my people will not be This will not take place. Their faith prompted them to respond. Esther and Mordecai, though, they use wisdom in their response. They use wisdom in their response. They stay cool, calm, collected. They get very intentional with the way that they respond. So their faith causes them to respond. Wisdom is used in crafting their response. And then Esther and Mordecai, they exemplified unbelievable courage to actually do something. To actually do something about it. And so with our current social climate, with all the tragedies that have been jam-packed into one week, where we feel like our head is almost spinning, right? With all this stuff going on, I believe that we can learn a lot from Esther and Mordecai. You see, your faith should prompt you to respond. Your faith should prompt you to respond just like it prompted Esther and Mordecai to respond. You see, politics and and bandwagons and all that stuff aside, the heart of Jesus breaks at the tragedies of this past week. The heart of Jesus breaks at what's been going on in our culture, in our country. And our faith in Jesus should cause our hearts to break for the same thing. Because in relationship with Jesus, the more we get in that relationship, we know we talk about all the time putting Jesus at the center and chasing after it. The closer we get to the center, the more our heart becomes like his. And the things that make his heart happy should make our heart happy. And the things that break his heart should break our heart. And the events of this past week have absolutely broken the heart of God. And so our faith in Jesus, it should absolutely break our hearts as well. Our faith should encourage and cause us to respond. Does that make sense? That's huge. That's step one. Our faith should cause us to respond, but here's the deal. We should use wisdom and intentionality in our response, just like Esther and Mordecai. We should use wisdom and intentionality in our response. Our response should not be driven by the media. Our response should not be driven by social media or the talking heads who are trying to tell us what to think and tell us what to, that should not be, our response should be grounded in wisdom and intentionality. Don't be driven by the latest hashtag or trending event. Look at the issue behind the current affair. Don't get sucked into the current affair that social media and the talking heads are trying to do. Look at the issue behind the issue and address those with wisdom and intentionality because it's so much bigger and so much deeper than what's happened in our current affairs trending topics this week. 
It's huge. And so we need to approach those with wisdom and intentionality. Not knee-jerk reactions and polarizing and segregating and separating and I'm over here, they're over there. If you're not over here, you're not over there. Everyone's an idiot but me. That kind. That's not how Esther and Mordecai responded. Esther could have gone to Xerxes right off the spot and be like, whoa, 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 you hear what Haman's doing? Not okay. This is how we're going to do it now. She'd probably be on some desert island with Vashti somewhere, right? Nobody would be listening to anything she said. But she approached it with wisdom and intentionality and thoughtfulness. And she was able to save her people. She was able to do the extraordinary. And so we should use wisdom in our response. And probably the hardest part of this is that we need to be courageous, we need to be courageous and actually do something. Posting on Twitter and Facebook is not actually doing something. Newsflash. We need to actually do something. We can hope and pray until we're blue in the face. But unless we're doing something, James chapter 2 talks about faith without works is dead. We can faith, 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 faith all day. But if you're not doing anything being proactive, having courage. If Esther never stands up and says, Haman's got to cut this crap out, it's not going to fly, then nothing happens. No change takes place, no forward motion, no progression. And so these three things that jump out of this story of Esther should radically and drastically impact who we are. But Sam, you know, uh, where do I start? What do I say? How do we do this? Uh, I'm not here to give you those answers. I'm not here to do all that. My response is this, be the change that you hope for. Be the change that you wanna see in the world. Take it upon yourself to make that happen. You see, this past week, we had a house church at our, at our house, and we're going through the, the, the book of Acts in our house church curriculum. And we, I sent out a message that day, let's see, it was Wednesday, and um, I, think, I think all the, the craziness started on Tuesday. I sent out a message on Wednesday and said, listen, here's what's happening tonight. We're talking about it. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about Acts. You know, the Bible will be part of the conversation, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what are we gonna do about this? How are we going to respond? Because our faith causes us to respond. Let's have a conversation of how we can allow wisdom to impact that response. And then let's get a tangible plan of what are we actually going to do about it. And through our conversations, we went back and forth and it was, it was an awesome discussion. It was probably our longest, most in-depth conversation that we've had at House Church thus far. And it was amazing. And what we came to is that it starts with us, individually. Because it's such a macro problem, how do we have a micro impact on it? It starts with us and the way we relate to people and the way that I teach my kids to relate to people and the way that my sphere of influence relates to people in their sphere of influence and their sphere of influence. But it starts with us on the individual level. And so our faith prompts us to be broken when the heart of Jesus is broken. And if your heart is not broken over this stuff, you need to do an inventory and see how close your heart is to Jesus because your heart should be broken, completely shattered, broken over this stuff. I mean, I had so many conversations this week that I, was, I felt so heavy, heavy all week. Your heart should be broken 
over this stuff. And your faith is what prompts that in you. And wisdom enables us to intentionally and explore what, is God, what does God have us to do? Because God has something different for you than he does for me. That's why I'm not standing up here telling you what to do, because I can't do that. All I can do is coach you and say, listen, your faith should prompt a response from you. And if it's not, you need to check your faith because your heart should be broken over this. But you need to use wisdom to see how God would use you in this conversation, in this moving forward. How does God want to use you to make an impact? And then we need to have some courage that enables us to actually do something, put some feet on our faith, not, yes, I told them. Yes, that'll get the message across. Yes, made my point. I mean, come on, actually do something. Have a conversation, build relationships, do something. Don't type something, do something. Because just like Esther, being silent is not an option. If you're a Christ follower, being silent is not an option. It's not something you can ignore and it'll go away. Our faith prompts us to respond. Wisdom crafts our response and courage brings it to life. Our faith prompts us to respond. Wisdom crafts our response and then courage brings it to life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the story of Esther. I thank you so much for the story of faith, for the story of wisdom, for the story of courage, that it can inspire us, that it can challenge us, to, that it can call us to action. God, I take a moment and I pause and I pray for our country. I pray for all the individuals that make up our country. And I pray, Lord, that we would be receptive to the leadership of your Holy Spirit and how you would call us to respond, how you would call us and use us to make change, to be the change that we hope to see in our world. God, I pray that you would, you would continue to encourage us that you want to do the extraordinary through us. And God, I pray this morning that our faith would prompt us to respond. I pray that we would seek your guidance for the wisdom of what exactly you would have us to do. And then I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to actually do it. We love you, we praise you, and we adore you in Jesus' name. Everybody said.